Hi everyone, my name is Grace and together with my husband Michael and our baby Matilda, we've been at this church for the last few years and feel very blessed um, by the Windsor community. Um, Today I'll be doing the Bible reading starting from Luke 23, verse 36 to 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophet and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Thank you, Grace. It's lovely to have uh, Grace and Michael and Matilda with us. It's been great getting to know them as well as many of you guys uh, as well. I encourage you, as we have been growing as a church, you may find yourself in this situation where you arrive at church and you say, Ooh, the people that were here when I was last here are not the people that I'm seeing today. What do I do in this situation? (laughs) I encourage you to take an opportunity to actually introduce yourself, get to know one another, uh, because God is doing a lovely thing among us here at Windsor District Baptist Church. He is doing a beautiful and a lovely work. This is my son, Joshua. Thanks, Josh. He went and grabbed the clicker for me. Appreciate you, buddy. uh, God is doing a lovely thing here, and, and we, we want you to be a part of it. I think in some ways, like one of the benefits of my role is I get, to, I get to see, I get sort of a front row seat for all that God's doing. I feel bad for a lot of you that you don't get to see it, and that's partly just because you don't know each other well enough yet. So I do encourage you to take that opportunity and take that time to get to know one another. Uh, but whether it's your first time, your fifth time, your 50th time, 500th time here, uh, welcome each day is a new day. And this morning we have an opportunity to come under God's word. Uh, If you are a young person among us, and I'll let you decide whether that fits you or not. If you're a young person among us here today and uh, you're concerned, how am I going to listen to this sermon? Sermons aren't really my thing. Uh, I encourage you, you can, you can nudge uh, someone with a smartphone and say, hey, can you scan that code for me? Uh, there's some resources on the Engage page that's at the, the, on the code at the back of your chair if you want to have a look at that. Uh, there's also some packs if you like to color in and do things, you can find those outside of there. But my goal in all of this is to keep your attention. So I'm going to work hard to try and do that. And you just feel free to wave if you're like, it's not working. Um, but God's, God's word is amazing. And it relates to people at all stages of life. And, and one way I can tell you that this morning is that there is something going on in this passage that we just heard that probably has happened in a school near you. That is what we used to call show and tell. Anybody been to a show and tell before? Everybody had to do that before, right? Show and tell, you show up, you say, hey, this is the thing, this is what I brought, this is the thing that I did, look what I made, isn't it beautiful? And then the teacher says, please, tell the class as you show the class all that is going on. Well, Jesus is doing the greatest show and tell 
that has ever happened until the one he's going to do in the future when he shows himself again. But Jesus is here. He's doing a show and tell. It's a show and tell. He's showing them that he's alive and he's telling them what that means. That's going to be the focus of our time this morning. Jesus showing that he's alive and telling them what that means. Now, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, and we've titled this last section, The Way of the King. This is all about Jesus being the king and what that means. And it's important that we ask that question because a lot of kings, as we think of them, they don't do things like die on crosses. We don't think of kings as being mocked at least not to their face. We don't think of kings as being beaten or having their clothes taken off them. We don't think of kings as suffering a defeat or a loss. But as we've been watching in this gospel, we see that that is in fact the thing that makes Jesus a king, that he went to the cross because he had a very special part to play in God's plan. And so we've been watching Jesus go to the cross. We've been watching him as he rose from the dead. And here we're going to come to the last in this gospel, the last of his appearances. This will be the third time an appearance is referenced. And it's kind of his, his sort of, his last real time before he goes up into heaven with them, at least in Luke's gospel. Uh, the big question today is, how do we know that Christianity isn't too good to be true? Maybe you've thought something has been too good to be true in your life. We've all had the experience Christmas morning. We, maybe, maybe you haven't. I, I, I had the experience Christmas morning, and you see the big box under the tree, and you think, oh, I bet that is my next game console. And, and, and you, you, you look at the shape of it, you feel the weight of it, you, you, you're sort of looking around, you're shaking it, and, and you think, this has got to be it. This is it. This is what I think it is. And then you unwrap it, only to find it's some really intense board game. And you're like, oh, man, it was too good to be true. I wanted it to be true, but it isn't really true. It's too good to be true. Have you ever wondered that about our faith. Have you ever wondered, is the Christian story just too good to be true? That's the question. But more importantly, how do we know, how do we know that's not what's going on here? I mean, in some ways you might say, well, look, pastor, you're, you're, you're saying that, that we see we see, little, we see little hints, we see little breadcrumbs, we see stepping stones that point us to a future that you say is going to be amazing. But how do we know? Well, if you find yourself in that camp this morning, I encourage you to listen and more importantly to hear what Jesus has to say. We used this slide a few, a few weeks back and we talked about when faith is blind. You may have heard the expression blind faith. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called pin the tail on the donkey. And they'd put a blindfold around your, around your eyes and they'd give you this thing to stick in your hand. It's really dangerous when you think about it, right? They wait, here, here, here's a sharp implement and we're going to close your eyes and there's a bunch of kids walking around and you just sort of walk until you hit something, right? Uh, and a lot of people use that, that idea of blindness to describe what faith is. Is that what we're doing here? Is Christianity just an exercise in closing your eyes and just walk in a direction until you hit something. And you're trusting that in the end, when you open your eyes, you're going to have pinned the tail on the donkey. Or you're going to have popped the key in the door to heaven. Whatever you, you, you might want to use as your illustration there. We saw that to have blind faith, it really was to be... Uh, stuck and dismissing of every, of every other alternative, or to have an unquestioning allegiance, to just go with the way things are without actually engaging the mind or the will or the heart that God has given you. But you may remember that it was the discovery of the empty tomb that prompted our hearts to believe in Jesus. Now, the empty tomb is a fact. 
It's a reported fact of history, just like the fall of Rome, just like the, uh, you know, name some event in, in history. It's a reported fact of history, but it prompts our heart to believe in Jesus. And so when we talk about the gospel, which is another way of saying the good news, when we talk about the good news of our faith, it's not a spiritual story that's been invented in order to explain a natural thing that we see every day. No, the gospel is a historical account that has been passed down that explains a supernatural event. In other words, something that doesn't happen every day for which we have no better explanation. That when we weigh it up on balance, it points us to a reality that's bigger, a reality that supersedes or goes beyond of a reality that takes over the reality that we inhabit. But living in this reality is one that requires faith. Now, our big idea today, oh sorry, back to sort of our big question. This big question, is Christianity too good to be true? Well, our big idea today is that faith is not wonder. This morning, we need you to separate these two categories. To have faith is not the same as wondering. It's not, it's not pondering. It's not a sense of amazement. What is faith? Now, this is really long, so we're going to unpack it. But faith is understanding that's been illuminated or, or brightened or revealed with the word of God by the spirit of God. Faith is not wonder, it's understanding that is illuminated or, or lit up, if you will, just like you walk into a dark room, you flick on the lights. Faith is understanding that's been lit up with the word of God by the spirit of God. And that is not the same as just being amazed. That is going to be borne out in this story that we have before us today. Put another way, or perhaps the bigger idea here is that Jesus appeared to his disciples so that we would know he lives. It's as simple as that. Jesus appeared to his disciples so that we would know that he lives. Not just that they would know, but that we would know. And you'll see how that comes to light. Now, if you want to understand this sort of, all this passage in its entirety, here's a little bit of a breakdown for you. So this is the third appearance the first one was to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. The second one was just one we heard about. It was that they walked in the door and they said, hey, we got a story for you. They said, well, well, we have a story. And they said, well, the story is that Jesus appeared to Peter. And they said, oh, he appeared to us too. So the first time in Luke's gospel, the first appearance is on the road to Emmaus. The second is this brief appearance where Jesus appeared to Peter. We don't know much else about that. And then the last one is here. And in his final appearance, Jesus ensures, or he makes certain, that the disciples move from wonder into faith. They move from wonder into faith. Now, this is really important because we hear lots of things in life that make us wonder. That make us step back and say, wow, isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? But... If we leave our relationship with Jesus simply in this posture of saying, wow, that's amazing, Jesus, then we haven't moved into faith. Faith looks a little bit different than that. So, by way of overview, what I want you to see today is that faith is different from wonder in that it trusts in Jesus as king. Faith is different than wonder in that it trusts that Jesus is the king. When I moved to this country back in 2015, I, sorry, no, 2010, wasn't it? Wow, I just erased five years of my life. There we go. <laughs> 
the Burke years. <laughs> 2010, I moved to this country. <laughs> and, and I spent a lot of time wondering. I, I, didn't, I didn't know... I didn't know how parliamentary democracy worked. I didn't know, you know, what the RMS or the RTA was. I, I, I didn't know what the chemist was. I thought the chemist was this guy who was in town who'd sort of like make potions and, and, and they'd make the potions and then you would go if you were sick. I was like, why does Australia believe in witch doctors? This is really weird to me, right? I wondered about all these things, right? And then slowly you get to a point where, okay, now I begin to understand now I, now I realize that, that there is a certain organization, a certain structure to this, to this society. And so I moved out of this place, out of this place of wonder. Maybe you're in a relationship with somebody and you're starting to get to know them. And whether it's a friendship or whether it's a romantic relationship, you, you often begin in this, in this place of wonder. And you think, wow, you're such an interesting person. I really would love to spend more time with you. I'd love to, to get to know you. But relationships aren't meant to stay in that, in that space of wonder. You, you will either move from that wonder into a place of faith in that person. You'll say, you know what? I trust you. And I'm going to let you in. I'm going to rely on you. I'm going to let you into my inner circle. And if it's a relationship that is leading towards a marriage covenant, there's a lot of faith that you have to invest to get to that place, isn't it? But eventually you get to that place and you say, you know what, I am, I am committed. I am going to invest myself. And sometimes when you're in a space of wonder, you, 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 the relationship, you learn more about the person and you realize, you know, this, is, this friend maybe isn't as good a friend as I thought they were going to be. And you say, you know what, I can't put my faith. I can't put my faith in this. So there's a lot of areas in life where we move from faith to wonder, but the, the most, excuse me, from wonder to faith, but the most important is in knowing who our king is and who our God is. And so the Holy Spirit is here now with us. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit in order to reassure us that he's alive. And he really does this through four lines of evidence. He does this by... The, the evidence of his peace, by the evidence of eyewitness reports, by the fulfillment of God's promises, and by the advance of the gospel. So, we'll look at those things at the very end. But, what you need to see here as we come into this passage is that Jesus first appears to his disciples, he assures his disciples he enlightens or he opens the minds of his disciples. And finally, he commissions or he sends his disciples. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have today to look at this great show and tell that you've done for your disciples. Thank you for the faithful witnesses who recorded this for us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who emboldened them and empowered them to do this. Thank you, Jesus, that you are alive and that we can know you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so follow with me in your Bible, if you have it. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, you're not supposed to start a story in the middle, so this is a little bit weird, but we, we, we started this last week, so when, when you start with while, what was going on? What was going on was these two guys who'd been walking away from Jerusalem, remember, they were, they were discouraged, they had a lot of doubts, and they said, you know, I think we're going to go home now. I think the Jesus thing is over, we're going to go home now. And Jesus met them, but they didn't recognize him. And you heard the story last week about how they came to realize who he was. And then once they realized that it was Jesus, what did they do? They turned right back around. They said, we got to go back. We got to talk to our friends. We got to tell them that we saw Jesus alive. And so they show up and they get into the room and, and they said, hey, guess what? Jesus is alive. And they said, oh, come on. You stole my thunder. You stole our story. So while they're talking about this, so here they are, the 12, well, not the 12, the 11 and a few others are, are together. And as they're speaking, Jesus appears. And he stands among them and he says, peace be with you. 
Now, what do you think their reaction would be? What would your reaction be if suddenly you, you, you're, you're talking with your Christian friends, you've, you've been really excited about, about the fact that the truth of God seems really, really clear to you now, you seem to understand God better, and then all of a sudden, there's Jesus. What would you do? Here's what the disciples did. <laughs> they were startled and they were frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Now, you might be asking yourself, didn't they, weren't they talking about how he was alive? Weren't they talking about how, how, how they'd seen him? So why do they think he was a ghost? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Jesus appears and his word to them is, peace be with you. They had some sense that Jesus was alive, but it's clear that they didn't quite fully grasp to what extent it meant that he lived. Human beings from all different cultures have for a long time talked about ghost stories. Ooh, ghost stories. In fact, when Jesus, before he went to the cross, when the disciples were in the boat and the storm was raging and they saw Jesus on the water, they thought he was a ghost. We know that Jews believed in angels. And so there's a sense that they could identify that this is Jesus, but, but they couldn't identify that this was that Jesus. You know, is my mind playing tricks on me, they're wondering. Is this just my imagination? Am I, am I seeing this because I want to see it? You know, did I have pizza last night and I really shouldn't have eaten that? It's not sitting well with me. And, and what, why am I seeing Jesus here? We know that people today, under the influence of certain drugs or narcotics, can go into hallucinations. And, and some people have that even without that. And that's a... That can be a very troubling thing. And so the sense is that as they're, they're, they see Jesus, it's like, hey, are we, are we all having this hallucination here? What's going on? They thought he was a ghost. Now, this is really important. Because some people who say that the Christians made up this story, that the disciples invented this story, but even here... <laughs> they don't seem to have an expectation that he's actually alive. They have, they're still in this place of wonder. They're still in this place of asking, what does all this mean? I can see that there's something here, but I don't understand what all this means. And Jesus' words in the midst of this is, peace be with you. Now we're going to sort of extrapolate this. Now that was a, that was a greeting that Jesus used with them. And it was really important because Jesus came to bring peace and he came to bring salvation. Peace between God and us, peace between one another, peace on earth. We sing that at Christmas, don't we? And so Jesus appears and he says, peace, peace be with you. In John's gospel, Jesus would say to his disciples, he would say, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. It's not a peace as the world gives, but it's my peace. And so... For us as Christians today, there is a sense in which we know the real, the reality of Jesus' life and his power, and that's through the peace of his presence. There is no mistaking the peace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, we're told it's a peace that passes all understanding. Maybe that's Philippians, sorry. It's a peace that's beyond our understanding. And, and, and I don't know how else to describe it to you except to say it's a peace that quiets your mind and it calms your heart. Quiets your mind and it calms your heart. This, this worrying that's constantly going on, this, this, this churning up, this, this restlessness, sorry, that we have in our spirit. 
This constantly turning and tossing. I don't know if you have trouble sleeping, but if you're one of those people who struggles to sleep, that's a good picture of, of our spirit. It's never quite at rest. It's always sort of tossing and turning. But when the peace of Jesus comes, it's, it can't be described as anything other than this quietness of mind and a calmness of heart that makes you still. And once you've tasted it, once you've experienced it, you begin to recognize it. And you see it in other people. And I don't think it's by mistake that it comes in the gathering of the disciples. So in the one sense, is, is this Jesus just saying, hey guys, I'm here? Yeah, you could say that. It's Jesus just saying, hey, I'm here. Peace be with you. Hey guys, peace. <laughs> but in another sense, Luke seems to be putting his finger on something. That part of the unmistakable presence and proof that Jesus is alive is the peace of God that inhabits the gathering of his people. I hope you know that peace. But Jesus sees that they don't quite understand. So verse 38, he says to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Oh, what, a, what, a, what an accurate description. Here they are. They've been talking about how Jesus is alive. And then they, they, but they're not settled. They're deeply troubled. And Jesus, through his knowledge of them, he sees doubts begin to just sort of lift and just kind of come to the front of their mind. You can imagine what they might have been. Is this really who I think it is? Am I going crazy? Am I having a hallucination? Am I really going to say that I've seen something that has never, ever, ever happened before? You can imagine the doubts as they begin to rise. So listen to how Jesus assures them. He says, look, at my hands and my feet, it is I, myself. It's me. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, why did he say, look at my hands and my feet? Do you recall what would have been, what would have been seen if you looked at Jesus' hands and his feet after he was on the cross? You would have seen the holes, wouldn't you? You would have seen the holes in his hands and his feet. Jesus is saying, I am the one that you saw on the tree. And touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm actually alive. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Now, here's where we get, start to get into the, is this too good to be true? The disciples are, are they're, they're beginning to put together, they're, 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 their senses are beginning to put together the truth of what they're seeing, but it's so good and it's so real, they, they've almost resisted that this could be real. One of the, sad things that happens as we get into adulthood is we have to learn to protect ourselves from things that hurt us. And so we begin to employ these mechanisms to not get our hopes too high, to not, to, to not try and feel things too deeply. We try to protect our heart from things like this. And so you have the sense that the disciples, as, as, as their minds and as their, their, their senses are telling them, this is really Jesus, in their hearts there's this, I, I, this can't be true. I, I, I'm, I can't go there. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was with, still with you. <laughs> Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. As I was preparing this message, one commentator, James Edwards, points out that for four of the early church fathers, 
specifically uh, starting with Ignatius, whose death we can mark at 107 AD. For four of the church fathers, Jesus' phrase, look at my hands and my feet, there's, there's evidence in the tradition that they're not getting that from a written source. What I mean is that this was something that Jesus had said to these 12, 11, and the others. Jesus had said to his disciples, and they remembered it. It locked in with them, these words. Don't have time to get into all the scholarly reasons why it's, there's good evidence for it's an oral source, but this is likely a remembrance of them. Notice here how it's not just the law of Moses and the prophets, but the Psalms as well. So here the, all the Old Testament is seen as pointing to Jesus. And so he assures them by saying, look at me, you can, you can verify. The, I am really flesh and bone. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a phantom. I am flesh and bone. He's not a hologram, <laughs> right? And then he says, I'm, I'm the one who was died. You know, Jesus didn't have an identical twin. Some people have said, you know, Christianity really just, Jesus had a twin brother and he was an identical twin. And what they did was they just swapped out the one who hadn't been killed on a cross. And that's the one that they, you know, claim to see again. You see the lengths that people have to go to to try to make sense of this story. So he establishes by showing his marks on his hands and his feet that he was the one on the cross. He then says, can you give me something to eat? Now, if you take what's going on in this appearance and what Jesus did in the, on the road to Emmaus, you'll notice Jesus is, is revealing he's alive through two different meals. One is bread and one is fish. And... I don't know about you, but you can't read the Gospels and think about a meal with bread and fish without thinking about Jesus feeding the 5,000. When he asked, the disciples said to him, Jesus, what are we going to do? These people are hungry. And he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we don't have anything. And one person came along and said, well, look, we found these five loaves and two fish. And what he did was he fed the multitudes. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes so that everyone ate. It is probably the greatest act of hospitality ever. Jesus says, at my table, there is plenty. And I will provide the sustenance that everyone needs. John would liken this to what, what is going on in the wilderness that the, the children of Israel experienced. When they crossed the Red Sea, they went through the desert and they ate the manna, the bread of heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's me. So I imagine with this in their minds, Jesus then, for the first time in all of Luke's gospel, we see him eating. a bit weird. Now, are we saying Jesus never ate food? No, of course he ate food. He was at the table, but we never see him eating. We see him sharing. We see him giving. We see him breaking bread. We see him multiplying loaves and fishes. But here, he takes the fish and he eats it in their presence. There's no other record in Luke's gospel of him eating. Of course he did. What's, what's going on here? On the one hand, Jesus is verifying that his resurrection is a bodily resurrection. It, it's not simply in the, in the spiritual realm. There's a physicality to it. And all those people who said, I hope there's food in heaven, this is a good, this is a good case for you. You know, if you're a foodie, right? Hey, maybe great days ahead. But I think there's something else going on here. In Luke's gospel, so much of Jesus' ministry is centered around the table, isn't it? He's at the table with, with, with Simon. 
He's at the table with the tax collector. He's multiplying loaves and fishes at the table. He's at the table at the Passover. So much of Jesus' ministry, you could actually say Jesus, is, Jesus came to invite people to his table. And here, for the first time, he's the guest. Even last week on the road to Emmaus, they invited him to sit down, but Jesus is acting as the host, isn't he? But here, Jesus is the one who's the guest. And as John Carroll has suggested, I think, and I think it's a fair one, what we're seeing here is the beginning of the transition. It's the beginning of the disciples taking up the ministry of Jesus. This ministry of hospitality. This ministry of welcoming people to his table. And Jesus, what a great first guest. But if that's too sort of out there for you, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Jesus assures, and we know that Jesus lives because eyewitnesses saw him alive in his body after he died. Eyewitness testimony. And these witnesses gave bold reports. They didn't expect him to be alive, even though he told them they would. And these things are handed down. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he tells him quite plainly, you want to jot this down in your Bible or in your notebook or somewhere, 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, Paul says, I pass on to you what was passed on to me. And he goes and he lays out the appearance of the risen Lord. They saw him bodily. He assured them. But they still... They're not quite there, but here's the turning point, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Now, the first part he'd been telling them, he'd been telling them, he'd predicting the Messiah had to suffer, had to die, and would rise on the third day. But the new part comes in verse 47. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. We know Jesus lives because he fulfills and unfolds the plan God promised. I chose those words carefully. Jesus fulfills the plans and promises of God. In other words, he is the key. You cannot know God and his plans and his purposes without understanding who Jesus is. But he is also not just the fulfillment of that, he's the one that unfolds it. He's the one that ushers it in. He's the one that, that opens it. And so here in this text, we see he's opening their minds so they can understand the scriptures. If your friends read the Bible and they don't understand what it says, don't worry. Okay? Don't freak out. If you've been talking to your neighbor or your loved one or someone in your family and you're like, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. They come to you and they say, I read the Bible. I don't understand what it means. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Instead... Pray and ask the Lord. Say, Lord, will you open their minds they can understand? Because we know that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. They don't understand. You know, there is a whole lot more to our faith than this book. I love the Bible. I'm committed to teaching and preaching the Bible. I, I, I find so much nourishment from the scriptures. But if all we had was words, it's not enough. If there's no being behind the Bible, if there's no Messiah to make sense and to unfold and to unlock the promises that are contained in this book, then at the end of the day, it's just a book. As Christians, we're not saying, 
hey, here's a good book. Read it and become like me. No, we're saying there's a being who is Lord of all. He's conquered death. His name is Jesus. You can read about him in this book. One of my favorite stories from seminary was the preacher took his class. You know, in seminary, they, they take you into preaching classes that teach you how to, how to do what I'm doing. And, and they, they take, he took the class outside. And we went to seminary in Chicago. And the winters there are pretty, pretty brutal. So this is kind of late autumn, late autumn in Chicago. The leaves are turning. And it's sort of that brisk, cold, cold air. And he said, we're going on a field trip. And so they go out. And they don't go very far, about five, ten minutes away, and they pull up to this really small graveyard. And all the kids, all the guys are looking at each other, what's, what's this? What are we doing here? Right? And then they go out to the, go out to the seminary, seminary, the cemetery, and they walk, they walk up to one of the headstones. And the prof says, all right, he pulls out his, his roll. He says, okay, uh, you know, Bill, you're up first. I want you to preach your message. What message? He said, the one you gave last class. It was a good message. I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. I'd like you to give that message. To who? Well, whoever this was. I want you to give it to them. He says, I, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. That's a bit weird. He says, all right, all right, well, I'll go. And so the seasoned professor gets a really intense countenance, looks at the headstone, and with all the passion and all the urgency he can muster, he, he exhorts this headstone. And he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Everyone's looking around. <laughs> this guy's lost it. <laughs> and after he goes one minute, two minutes, the third minute he finally pulls up and he says, you preachers, he says, unless the Holy Spirit attends your preaching, you're about as effective as me right now talking to this piece of granite. Because we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are spiritually flatlined. But by the grace of God, we are made alive through the intervention of the Holy Spirit. And so you will not move from wonder to faith. You will not, you, you, can, you can be amazed and have your jaw on the floor and everything can seem like it's so good to be true, but you will not shift from wonder into faith unless the Holy Spirit is opening your mind to comprehend the plan and plans and purposes of God. And this is a little bit of a clue as to why Jesus says to these people, hey, don't go anywhere <laughs> until you have the Spirit. But for those of us who have been made alive and born of the Spirit, then once, once the Spirit comes and, and, and removes the blinders, then we're told, in the words of Jesus in a parable, someone who, who, knows, who knows the words of God and has been steeped in the scriptures, you're like a person with this great storehouse of treasures because the Spirit's finally given you the keys and you can unlock the door and you go into the storehouse and you pull out all these treasures, new and old. All the great blessings and the promises of God. Finally, Jesus says you are witnesses of these things. He had told them, you're my disciples. He told them, you're my, you're my apostles. Here, he sends them. He says, you're my witnesses. You're witnesses of these things. What things? 
the fact that all that God had written and said through his prophets was fulfilled and unfolds in Jesus Christ. He says, you're witnesses of this. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And so as the, we get to the last few words of this gospel, this really long gospel where he started by telling Theophilus, look, I've sat down to write an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled among us so that you might know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. He started with this guy who needed a bit of grounding in his faith. And as we come to the very last sort of pages, last words of this gospel, you get the sense that the story's just beginning. That Jesus, born, ministered, dead, buried, risen, ascended, that that's not the end of the story. But it's just beginning. There's this whole other path that's about to unfold. But Jesus says, you got to wait. He sends his disciples, and we know that Jesus lives because his power accompanies the preaching of his name. He says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So we come back to this. What's some evidence? What, what's the Spirit testifying to us? First, the first line of evidence that the Spirit brings is the peace that comes with the presence of Jesus. It's a supernatural, otherworldly peace that attends his presence. The second line of evidence is the emboldened reports, the witnessing of these people who one moment are fearful, but the next moment they're standing in front of the same ones that killed Jesus, and they're not afraid, they're not scared, and they're telling this story. Thirdly, the third line of evidence that the Spirit presses upon us as he's making this case that Jesus is the King. The third line of evidence is the fulfillment of God's promises. It's as if the Spirit of God says, go ahead, try to make sense of everything that God said without Jesus. See how far you get. And finally, the last line of evidence is the way the Spirit's advanced the gospel. This is a group of, you know, probably, I don't know, 20, 25 people maybe in a room in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and here we are. Way out in whoop-whoop. <laughs> That's Burke, sorry. We're just whoop. <laughs> here we are, in the Southern Hemisphere, 2,000 years later, and you've come. You've come because you know that power attends the preaching of his name. And you know there is something. And though these same people who saw these things, bar one, went to their death, were brutally murdered for their testimony, the message still advanced. Though Christians were fed to lions in Rome, while people stood on and jeered and mocked, Though this religion rose up from the gutter, this was not some sort of landed power class that started the Christian faith. Here we are. After Charles Darwin, after Dawkins, after Nietzsche, after I mean, all these people, here we are. people still come to me and they say, you know, I don't know what it is, but there's something in the name of Jesus. That's the Spirit saying, I'm keeping what I've promised to do. I want you to just assess your faith. Ask yourself, am I closer to doubt, to wonder, or to faith? Which of those, in which of those seats am I sitting? Am I closer to doubt, to wonder, or to faith? How does Jesus' bodily return affect my view of him or his claims? It's an important question. If the bodily resurrection of Jesus doesn't mean anything to you, I mean, he might as well, like he could have been a ghost. You might say, you know what, he could have been a ghost. And frankly, it's really his ideas and his ethics. That's, that's the thing that we really need to take from Jesus. It's the golden rule. Love one another. Be kind. You know, whether he rose bodily or didn't rise, that doesn't really matter. If that's you, you've missed it. 
Do you need Jesus to grasp God's plan? If you can write the story of God and his ways and leave out Jesus, your view of God is wrong. Do you need the power of Jesus to live out your faith? (laughs) Here's some signs of real faith. We've already talked about some of these. We're aware of his presence with us. Might not feel it all the time, but there's an awareness there that he's with me. Guilt and fear for your own life, it begins to fade away. The guilt that you carry, this fear of what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to me, it begins to dissipate. Why? Because you have a Lord that conquered death and bore your sin and you're forgiven. Hope becomes a tangible reality, not like a wish. Christianity is, is not that long pause before you blow out the candle. That's not what we're doing here. We're not all holding our breath for a lifetime and contemplating, oh, please be true, please be true, please be true, please be true, blow out the candle. No, hope becomes more tangible. You're like, actually, I'm looking forward to this. We begin to learn how God works and obedience Our obedience to Jesus starts to become a personal priority. It's not something I have to do. It's something I I want to do. I want to please my Lord. And so the way of the king becomes a way of certain hope. Brothers and sisters, I hope you know this hope. I hope that God moves you from faith to wonder. Sorry, from wonder to faith. I keep saying it wrong. (laughs) Ah! But you laugh, which means you got what I'm trying to say. So that's good. I'm going to take that as a good thing. Move from wonder to faith. Let's pray. Lord God, would you do what only you can do, which is speak into the inner places of our being? Would you enlighten our minds that we would have understanding? Lord, not that we... Not that we can grasp the fullness of all that you are, but Lord, we can still learn your ways, that we would have a confidence in what you've done for us. So God, as we, as this gathered community, contemplate the risen Lord, may the reality of his resurrection transform our understanding, transform our expectation. Lord, may the guilt that we feel, the fear of our own existence and what's going to happen to us, may it just be overshadowed by the the risen Christ. May we see his hands and his feet. And may we know the promise, Father, that you have poured out, the indwelling of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Worship our great God.